Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Israel, finally, he tries to hide out elsewhere uh, in, in the attempt to try to get Saul to stop pursuing him. And so he actually goes, uh, this is how low David actually gets. He goes to the land, thank you so much, he goes to the land of the Philistines, the same Philistines uh, of the people who he continues to defeat, the same Philistines uh, of whom, whose champion he cut his head off. So he goes to the land of the Philistines and he hides out there for well over a year. Uh, but then the Philistines continue to fight against Israel and David, because he is in the land of the Philistines, is called to fight with them against Israel. And so picture this, the guy who has continually been fighting against the Philistines is now hiding out in Philistine land and is called to now fight against his own people uh, with the Philistines. But the Philistines think that he is plotting. Uh, he isn't, but they think he's plotting, and so they reject him from fighting with them. And all the while, while this is all happening, uh, if you remember the Amalekites, the Amalekites go and they take over this city called Ziklag, and they capture David's wives, and, uh, and David ends up saving the day and rescuing his two wives, and he becomes a hero once again. And in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, uh, the Philistines go up to battle against Israel. And Saul, uh, who's still king at this time, sees the writing on the wall. And, and there's this line there that says he, he falls on his sword. And so at the end of the story, at the end of 1 Samuel uh, chapter 31, we, we find Saul who would rather off himself uh, than become a prisoner of war. And he attempts to take his life. And this is where the first scroll of Samuel ends. But remember, remember that the, 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 the 1 and 2 Samuel are one book. They're one story. And so the only reason why we have 1 and 2 Samuel is because of the scroll length. But as modern readers, when we enter into 2 Samuel, what we're, we're going to be seeing is uh, the continual rise of David. And so Saul is dead at this point. David is in power. And he, maul, he, he mourns and he laments. He cries out when he hears about Saul dying and his best friend Jonathan, Saul's son, he cries out, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Come to find out that when Saul tried to kill himself, he, he didn't complete the job. And so uh, someone comes along and, and, and actually, and Saul begs him to end his life and he does. And this is the same guy who goes with the message to David and tells him, hey, uh, uh, unfortunately, listen, I, I had to kill Saul. I had to, uh, I had to be the one to actually end his life. It is a crazy, messy story. David then ends up killing the guy who ends up killing Saul. It's a mess. Then David moves to the south. He moves to this place called Judah, a place called Hebron. And he rules as king there. But come to find out, listen, there's more drama. Come to find out that Abner, right? So remember, there's a lot of names here. So Abner used to be the commander of Saul's army. And when David goes to the south, to Judah, uh, Abner in the north in Israel, what he does, he takes Saul's son and he makes him king. And so there's war again, and Abner is incensed now because this is what happens. Abner puts this uh, Ish-bosheth, 
is his name. He puts him into power in the north. And then Ishbosheth, what he does, he accuses Abner of sleeping with Saul's concubines. It is, um, listen, HBO could not come up with this mess. It is crazy what's going on. Abner is incensed. And so now he turns on Saul's son and he goes to the leaders of Israel and he goes, okay, hear me out, David. And so now, now Abner wants David in power, and there's this power struggle, but then David's people don't trust Abner, and so they kill him behind his back. This is all a mess. And by the time we get to 2 Samuel 5, David finally, officially becomes the king of Israel, both north and south, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And this is what is said in uh, verse 5 here, if you can turn there. Oh, man, all kinds of problems. This is not working either. Look at that. Oh, there it is. So all the, elders came to, uh, uh, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. From here, David conquers Jerusalem. He sets up shop there. Uh, by ousting these people called the Jebusites, and it becomes the city of David. And this is what we need to understand here up until this point. Uh, this is everything that was supposed to happen. David is in power now. He's in Jerusalem. He goes on to defeat the Philistines. 2 Samuel 5 says that they be, David became greater and greater, and the Lord was with him. And so I, I, just want, you to I want you to enter into the story. David is settled in his new city. He's in a grand old palace made of the best wood from the king of Tyre up in the north. And David goes 30,000 deep. Imagine going 30,000 deep, 30,000 soldiers to go grab the Ark of God. His plan was to take it back to the city. There was some drama along the way, but up until this point, this roller coaster of events, what we need to understand is that this is exactly what was supposed to be happening. This was David's vision. This is the people of God finally at rest. Betrayal and suspicion and murder. And it's this mess. It's, it's this mess. And we're supposed to feel the messiness of it. The, how, how can this be in scriptureness of it? It's this mess that God enters in. He comes near to an undeserving people to transform them to be the conduits of an unstoppable, unstoppable mission. And this is where we're going to pick up our story. But before we do that, that was all intro. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you do not give us a sanitized version of Scripture. Scripture is messy. The people are messy. The story is messy. And there are things in here that sometimes uh, bother our religious sentiments. And so we thank you, Lord, that Scripture is real, that it is raw that it, it comes to us as we really are. And so we don't have to hide and we can come as we really are. And so help me now to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for you, uh, for, for your people. Help me to remember the things that will be. And all these things, Lord, over all of them, we ask, I ask, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said, and the church said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is 
the way our story begins. This is the background to all of our stories, the cosmic story and our own personal stories. This is, this is if you know anything about buildings, uh, this is the rebar of our lives, of the entire universe, uh, entire universe that God in the beginning created. And much like starting a novel halfway through, uh, if we don't have a fixed understanding of that reality, that in the beginning, God, we are going to get lost along the way. And so if we're going to understand today 2 Samuel 7, which is one of the most important texts in the Old Testament, we need to go back to the beginning. And I want to show you here uh, that when God creates in the beginning, I'm going to have to get you to go ahead and, am I good? Yep. God creates the heavens and the earth as two distinct spheres. And, and in the heavens and in the earth, what he does, he, he sets up uh, certain uh, beings to rule through in the heavens called Elohim. And he, he rules through the earth, through Adam, through humanity. And his, his vision is to have a space called Eden, that Eden was supposed to be something of a, a touch point between heaven and earth. God's desire, God's aim throughout the entirety of Scripture is, is to have a place where he can dwell with humanity. That's the whole point, by the way. Let me give you the cliff notes of the Bible. God with us. That's the whole point. That's the whole thrust. That is the whole vision of Scripture. That is the whole vision of God's uh, a story with us, is that he wants to be with humanity. And we know that what ends up happening is that there's this rift called sin, right, called missing the mark where Adam and Eve, they disobey God, they break his heart much more than breaking just a rule. And God's whole desire now is to bring these places back together. At the end of the story, I'm going to give you uh, uh, some spoilers here. Uh, God wins and it ends up happening and heaven and earth are reunited one day. But to get there, there's a whole lot of drama that happens. And, and what God does, he enters into partnership with humanity. He, he enters into what's called covenants with humanity. And this alone should stop us in our tracks. So let me just pause here for a moment with, with this fact. God will renew the world. Let, let me just clue you in on that. But the way that he's going to do that is he decides to call me and you and broken humanity. I mean, we, we, we heard like my, my, my poor retelling of the story here. It is a mess. And God decides to enter into that mess and he decides to use us. He decides to use us as conduits to renew the world, to heal it, to eradicate all that is evil and cancerous, to remove the evil and the sin and disease and rape and greed, all the things that vandalize his creation. He's saying, I'm going to do it with and through you. That should stun us for just a moment. And with Adam, what he does, he goes into a covenant with Adam. And he says, uh, I'm going to, uh, through you, I, I want you to take the shalom, the peace, the prosperity, the, the love, the, the hope that is in Eden, and I need you to spread it out to the world. And their job was to bring order that was in Eden and push it out into the world of chaos. And instead, what they do is they, they allow the rebellion and the chaos that is outside of the garden to come in, thereby ruining everything and introducing sin and death into the human 
race into the human line. And with Noah, he enters into a partnership, a covenant. And he covenants and he promises that he would never destroy the world in the same way, despite both human and supernatural evil. And then he gets into a covenant with Abraham. He gets into a partnership with Abraham. He covenants with Abraham and he says that through you, the whole world will be blessed. And then he enters into a covenant, a partnership with Moses, that it's going to be through this particular nation, through this particular people, that the whole world will be renewed. And now with David in 2 Samuel 7, he enters into what's called the Davidic covenant. And every single covenant, every single partnership builds on the last. And every covenant, every partnership has a sign. For, for Adam and Eve, it was presence in the garden. For Noah, it was a rainbow. For Abraham, it was male circumcision. For Moses, it was the ten words and social and ethical order. And for David, we'll see that it's going to be an everlasting kingdom, a Messiah that comes from the line of David that will forever occupy the throne. And this is what we're going to see today in 2 Samuel 7. So let's just jump in to see what the Lord has for us. David, David and the nation are at rest, as I said. David is in his palace in Jerusalem made of the finest wood cedar, which was a gift from up north from the king of a place called Tyre. And uh, at this point, Samuel, if you remember Samuel, the prophet is dead. He is gone. He is buried. And there's this new prophet on the payroll called Nathan, who we meet in our text. And David, he, he's sitting back in the lap of luxury, and he sees the disparity between uh, where he is living and how he is living versus how the ark of God is. His presence, God's presence is living. He says, no, nah, this ain't right. Let, let me build God a house. Let me build God a temple. And he consults with the prophet Nathan. And without even asking God, Nathan looks at uh, 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 the previous success of David. And he says, surely God is with you. I mean, look, look what you're, anything you've, he, he's got the Midas touch. Anything you've done, David, has succeeded. So surely go ahead and build Build God's house, gives David his blessing. But while Nathan was having his quiet time before bed, the Lord comes to him and he says this. Go, go and tell my servant David this. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel which I command, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Like Saul, David is a little presumptuous here, and he is uh, told by God to just take a seat because he's never asked for a house, he's never needed a house, he's never uh, uh, had one. He's never needed one. He's never asked for one. God, Yahweh, does not need to be tied down like these other deities from the nations around him. God doesn't need a temple. By the way, God never needed a temple. A temple was eventually built. Yes, absolutely. But God does not need a temple. He does not even want a temple. He likes being on the move. And this is David wanting to do something for God. And while I don't want to read too much into David's motives or be presumptuous myself, whether they are noble or otherwise, it's as if, it's as if David is looking at himself and feeling a, a little bit of pity for God. Saying, how, look how good I'm living and look how poor God is living. 
Like he's, he's, his presence goes about in a tent. And so let me correct what God is lacking and build him a temple. It's as if God is lacking something that David can supply. But, but God reminds him, I lack nothing. Not even your connect to the good wood cedar from up north. I don't need your bunnies discount. He, I'm good. I, I like living in tents. I like moving about with my people. And what we need to reckon with is this reality that God, you're sitting here, and, and so often we, we want to do something great for God, but God needs nothing from you. You're, you're free from having to perform. You're free from having to feel that God needs something from you. God needs nothing. But there is such a strong thread in us to do something, to perform, to outwork, to feed our own pride because we need to be needed, right? Like we need to be needed. We survive by being needed. This is why it's so hard for some parents to let go of their adult children because we need to be needed. This is why so many uh, pastors uh, develop codependent relationships with their churches because they need to be needed. This is why there's so much dysfunction in many of our relationships. We create habits and structures that place people in our debt because we need to be needed. And David needs to be needed. And the crown may be getting to his head because he thinks that God is lacking something that he can supply. And what Yahweh does, what God does, is he launches into a series of I verbs to remind David that all of this, you see all of this, it's all because of me. I've done this. And this is, this is what God does. He goes, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make, you, make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house. When your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, sure, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love, my chesed, will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I took you from the pasture. I have been with you. I have cut off all of your enemies. I will make you a great name. I will appoint a place for my people. I will plant them. I appoint judges. I will give you rest. I will make you a house. And David, by the way, when you're dead, when you're gone, which is just a euphemism for being dead, when you lie with your fathers, when you're dead and God and decomposing, I will raise up 
your offspring, and I will establish his kingdom. I will be a father to him. I will discipline him. I will never remove my love from him. And unlike Saul, at the face of all these I verbs, that God is the one building his kingdom, that God is the one who's doing the work, unlike Saul, David in the following verses is like, bet, you really are him, God. Like, like you're that guy. And this is what he says. Therefore, in verse 22, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And all that David can do at this point of, of hearing this is at the great promises of God is to worship. And this is what David gets to understand. And this is the reality uh, that I I want us to meditate on today, that God is always making the first move. He is always the initiator of what God is doing in the world. He is always the first on the scene. God is holding all the cards. He is in control. And yes, yes, you and I, humanity, we're called to partner with him genuinely. He, re- he responds to our decisions mysteriously. We are genuine partners, but don't get it twisted. God does not need us. God does not need this church. God does not need you and I to do something. God is not waiting around for us to get our act together so that he can move. Aslan is already and always on the move. And God is always the initiator in the salvation project and so many of us think that we're here because of us like we're here because I've made a good decision with my life we think that we're here because we are smarter maybe than others maybe we think we're here because of simply our choices and we have to ask the question why are you here why if you believe in Jesus here today why because if, if, if the first thing we say, to uh, the first thing we answer is to the question, is something that we've, if we are the, the, the verbs, if we're doing the things in the first things that we say, we've got it all wrong. You, you, you're not here because of your spirit, spiritual pedigree. You're not here because of your parents. And if you're in here and you don't consider yourself a believer of Jesus, why, why are you here today? You think that your search for truth, that your search for answers for God begins with you. But we have to know that God is always the first on the scene. He is the initiator. The verbs of salvation belong to God alone. The doing of salvation, the reason why you believe here today is not because of you. It is a gift that has been given to you that you've been called into to participate in. And so, David, you will not build me a house. I will build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And this is where God's partnership with humanity at this point is located, right here in Jerusalem through this little shepherd boy from the tribe of Judah. Started from the bottom, now we're here. That's the story of David. I mean, why do we like the rags to riches story? It's, It's right here. He was a stinky 16, 17-year-old shepherd boy, and now he is the king, a man after God's own heart. And this is the Davidic covenant. So this is the partnership that God enters in, that I will establish your throne forever. And this is God's promise to David, and God's word will not fail. Or will it? Because if you know anything about Scripture... Prophecies and scripture often have a a double meaning. But as we look at the history of Israel, we have to ask the question, 
is God going to come through on his promises? And this is, if you haven't asked this question, maybe you haven't lived long enough. But, but we, we wrestle, we tussle with the reality. Will God come through? Solomon ends up building the temple, the house of God. And there's this unparalleled prosperity during the reign of Solomon, unlike anything that happened before or after. It seems like all is well and the foundations are set for this everlasting kingdom to be placed beginning with David and Solomon. But if we know the story of Scripture, the story of the rest of the Old Testament, we have to ask the question, did God's word fail? We have to be able, listen, maybe you've grown up in a church or a a, a style of religion that, that doesn't allow you to ask those kinds of questions. But we have to ask the question, did God fail? Because it doesn't look too good. I'm going to give you a bit of a, a, a history lesson here. Uh, Saul reigned from 1050 to 1010. And then uh, the kingdom was taken from him. It was given to David. And then David gave it over to his son Solomon. And at this point, things are looking great. But what we learn later on in the story is that there's a split where Israel goes to the north, Judah goes to the south, and each, each side, north and south, have 20 kings each. And, and, by the eight, and by the time 722 rolls around, you never hear about the north again. They are wiped out. And then in 586, we have the Babylonians who exile the people from Judah. They return in 538, but they are a weak, weak and almost insignificant people. And, and the, the question, why am I at pains to show you what is happening in Scripture? Because God works through history, and we must know this, because if, if, if that's the end of the story, then I cannot call you to trust in Jesus. I cannot call you to follow God because God has failed. There is no king. What throne? If you go today to where the, 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 the temple was, there's a mosque. It's just not there. There, there is no physical throne to look at. And so what is, what is God doing? Because if this all ends with an empty throne, then at worst, God is a liar. At best, we're still waiting for one of David's descendants to take the throne. Neither one bodes well for us today. And truthfully, this all does look like it's going to fall flat on its face. It's this plan to keep the throne of David occupied. But if we've learned anything, if we've learned anything about the way God works, is that he works best with nothing. In the beginning, what did God have to work with to create the universe? Nothing. God works best with nothing. God had nothing. He spoke to nothing. And it's out of the nothingness that creation is birthed. What is a valley of dry bones to God? Possibility. What's death to God but, but the place of new birth? It doesn't produce fruit. What, what, what If you think about a stump, a tree stump, it does nothing. It produces no fruit. It produces no shade. All it does is it, it's a trip hazard. It might as well be dead. But in the economy of God, what looks like death, what looks like the end, what looks like hopelessness. And I know, I know you felt hopelessness. It's out of that place that he works best. God does his best work with nothing. The kingdom will be torn in two. Half of it will go, will go into oblivion. And half of it will be weak. 
Judah, the south, is exiled by the superpowers of the day. They return to the land to try to rebuild the kingdom. But nothing will ever reach the splendor of the temple that Solomon built ever again. But there's a stump. Let me tell you what, what the prophet Isaiah says. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That in the midst of a barren stump of a tree, life. And if we just look at the text, we can see that this is partially fulfilled uh, in his son Solomon, but we must learn to not only look at the text, but through the text, because ultimately Solomon, as we know, will fail. All of the kings of Israel, the 40 that they had, will fail. The covenant that God had with Adam, Adam fails in the garden. The covenant, the partnership that God had with Noah. Noah, the very first thing he does when he gets off the boat is he gets drunk and naked. Covenant with Abraham, Abraham, even righteous Abraham fails. Covenant with Moses and the people of Israel, they fail again and again. Covenant with David, the throne is fractured. What is God to do if humanity can't do it? Humanity continues to fail at their partnership with God. That's the whole point of Scripture. Like, like if you ever see yourself as the hero in any of the stories that I'm preaching here, then I'm preaching it wrong. Because we fail over and over and over. Again, humanity cannot be the partners that God requires them to be in order to see the chaos pushed back and salvation introduced in the world. We are all complicit and we have all been compromised. I don't care how good you think you actually are. We are all complicit and we're all compromised. But there's a stump, this glorious stump. I'm going to read to you a bunch of names. This is, this is to me the most exciting genealogy that I will ever read. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. Hold on, there's a lot more to go. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah is the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos. Amos was the father of Josiah, and Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of, of, of Elikayim, Elikayim, the father of Azer. Azer was the father of Zadok. Hold on, I'm almost there. Zadok is the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathen. Mathen was the father of Jacob. You know who Jacob was the father of? Jacob was the father of Joseph, the father, uh, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born to. The patience of God. Listen, why is it that God continues despite human rebellion and human impotence and incompetence? The reason why genealogies, which I, uh, I, I can almost guarantee you skip over in your daily reading plan, the reason why they're there is to remind us of God's 
everlasting patience to work out his plan through his people. Rather than saying, man, I've been trying for millennia. I give my kids two chances to get in the shower, and I'm done. Millennia. Millennia. Rather than saying, you know what? Your incompetence, your sinfulness, your stupidity just does not allow me to work out my plan in the world for you to be conduits of love and peace and order and shalom. But you continue to fail, so damn you to hell. Rather than allowing the full weight of humanity's failure to come upon their heads, the author of the story writes himself into the story. He himself, God says, I will do it myself. And I will accomplish what no others were able to accomplish. And I, myself, God Almighty, will swallow all of humanity's failures on the cross. Where Adam fails in the garden, Jesus, who is called the Christ, passes the test in the garden of Gethsemane. Noah's integrity fails. Where Jesus, who is called the Christ, lives a perfectly blameless life. Abraham ultimately fails. He betrays his wife to save himself. Twice he pimps out his wife to save himself. Jesus doesn't do that. He will harm himself for his bride. Jesus is the true and better Moses who fulfills the law and stands in the gap between God and his people. Jesus is the true and better David and is the very fulfillment of the prophecies that made, were made to him through the prophet Nathan. Solomon, he built a temple for Yahweh that was ultimately destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. The temple was rebuilt, 516. Herod renovated that temple. It was, it was, it was glorious, and the, the Romans ended up destroying it in 70 A.D., but there was another temple that Jesus speaks about. He, he, see, he, there's another temple that hands could not destroy. The house of David, the house that David spoke about building for God, the house that God spoke about building for David, they come together in Jesus. They come together in Jesus. Jesus said of the temple, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. This is Herod's temple. Uh, this, this place took 46 years to build. You're standing here, and you're telling me that you're going to destroy this temple, and in three days you're going to raise it up? And they did not understand that he was not speaking of the physical temple, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the ultimate son that would build a house for God. Jesus is the ultimate king that would then sit on this everlasting throne. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice whereby now, and this is the craziest part of all, that now you and I, you and I, me and you, like I'm not speaking metaphoric of someone out there who's, who's better than us morally. You and I right now with all of our mess and all of our dysfunction and all of our sin, we now get to be a part of this structure. We actually get to be a part of this temple that God is building. Jew or Gentile, male or female, free or slave, rich or poor, black, white, Puerto Rican or Haitian, able-bodied or disabled, old and young, every single one of us now has an opportunity to RSVP to the invitation to become part of the temple of God that God is building. Or do you not know, Paul says to the Corinthians, 
that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. You were bought with, every single one of us have been bought with a price, and the price is not your heritage, but Jesus's. The, 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 the price is not your obedience, but Christ's. Your, your price is not your performance, but Jesus's. When we come up to Jesus one day, and every single one of us will one day face Jesus, and we have to give an account for why we will spend everlasting life with him, it's because of him. It, it, it doesn't reside in us. The price is not your pedigree, but Jesus's. The price is nothing else but the very blood and body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me just tell you real quick how, how to get in on this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, uh, the scriptures say, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so if you're here today, and you don't know Jesus, or you've walked away from the church or Jesus, my invitation to you is to simply pledge your allegiance to Jesus. That is a gift. If you can even think, if you even want to do that today, let me tell you that doesn't come from you. That is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And if you are here and you already follow Jesus, my invitation to you is to do the same, to pledge your allegiance anew to the king. That he is with you, that he is for you, and he is building his everlasting kingdom, and he is calling us now to repent and be a part of his salvation project. We are all bricks in the temple that will never fade. And now, listen, now we're called to bear witness, to live lives, to live lives where, where we, we, we are the vehicles through which God is renewing the world. Like that's, that's our life now. And so he's building his kingdom. He's calling you right now to repent, believe, join the party, and bear witness his kingdom that will never fade. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that uh, we uh, don't uh, gather here to, uh, uh, to, to, to earn your love, to, to perform for you. We, we thank you that all of the gifts that are now ours are ours because we have incorp been incorporated into the life of Christ. The, the, the Christ who, who, who lived the life that Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and us could not live. Your, your incessant desire to work through us stuns us. And yet, Lord, we, we want to give in to that. We want to uh, give our lives now to see you work through us, to see you work in us, to see you work with us, to see you work despite us. Jesus, we love you. And we just ask that you would do a work here today in our hearts, in this church, in this city, in the friends and our families who don't believe yet, Jesus. And if there's anyone here, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be drawing them near. Jesus, we need you. And we thank you that even as you looked down the corridor of time and you saw humanity fail over and over and over and over again. You've decided to step into the story yourself. 
and be the king that none of us could be, be the king that we all need. And we thank you that when you ascended, you did not take off humanity. But even now, you are interceding for us. You are praying for us even now, Jesus. And so we thank you, and we love you, and we pray that you would do a mighty work now. In your name we pray. And the church said, amen.